The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're taking science into fiction. How do science fiction books and shows get it mostly right? We'll speak to Annalee Newitz about her book Autonomous and the scientists that she talked to for it. But first, we'll talk with Mika McKinnon about her work helping television shows get science right. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science in the Public. If you're interested in both science and geeky things, it's hard to miss the many blog posts, video series, and other media that take down the bad science in movies. From the cringeworthy genetics of Jurassic Park to the hilariously overwatered Waterworld, we peripatetic pedants love to traverse the geek universe for excuses to say, well, actually. But not all the science in movies, TV shows, and even books is bad. Some of it's actually really good. And there's a reason. It's because some producers and directors know when they are in over their head and they hire a scientist. Who do they hire? They might hire Mika McKinnon. She's a certified master of disaster and freelance scientist who has advised on shows from Star Trek Discovery, Stargate Atlantis, Stargate Universe, and shows like No Tomorrow and Madam Secretary. She may or may not have worked on Sharknado, but she's not completely sure. Mika, thank you so much for joining us. I am glad to be here. Let's begin with getting your scientific background straight. What exactly are you trained in and what do you spend most of your days doing? So once upon a time, I got a Bachelor of Arts in Creative Studies signed by Arnold Schwarzenegger, but I swear it's actually a physics degree. After that, I picked up a uh, Master's in Disasters specializing in geophysics. As for my day-to-day life, um, it's a bit more complicated. I do... I consider my job to be excited and curious in public. And how exactly I go about doing that depends on what projects look interesting and what needs to happen. I do everything from um, government consulting to try and reduce disaster risk up through wandering around on set, helping scientists, uh, helping directors and uh, being the stunt handwriting behind actors. And sometimes I do field geophysics, wandering around in the woods, hiding from bears. As one does. Of course. I mean, bears are big. They're growly. (laughs) I'd rather not encounter them without fair warning. Now, much as I would love to have you talk about actual disaster work, we'll have to do that another time because here, you are here to talk about TV shows. You are a science advisor on TV shows and movies. How do you break into becoming a science advisor on a TV show? Like, how do you get that gig? So I got very, very lucky in my first job in that uh, Vancouver is Hollywood North, where a whole lot of sci-fi films. We have a long heritage, including The X-Files filmed here, uh, quite a bit of the longest running uh, sci-fi franchise in North America, Stargate, all filmed here. We had um, Battlestar Galactica filmed here. All of these things are all in my backyard. And every now and then they come to the local universities and say, hey, we need a string theorist tomorrow. And somebody wanders off to set and goes and be a string theorist. That happens with Stargate. Um, and I wasn't a string theorist, but one of my friends was. So I shoved him at the job and he actually did a lot of his thesis work on set. But then he met a pretty girl in a telescope in South America and disappeared, which is kind of what happens with string theorists. Um, and so next time they came around, this time I realized they didn't need a string theorist. That was just the cleverest scientist they'd ever heard of. So I stuck my hand up and went, me, 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 and showed up on set and had a fabulous time. And they had a fabulous time. And we all learned a lot from each other. And I came back the next day and the next day and the next day. And soon everybody on set suddenly had their own personal scientists that they knew. And when they went to work on other shows, I followed them and started working on those shows, too. So I got lucky. A slightly more useful piece of advice is that in the United States, the National Science Foundation runs the Science and Entertainment Exchange, which is a matchmaking service between Hollywood or any content creator and scientists. And you can volunteer through the program. And if they have, if somebody comes to the program needing a scientist of your particular expertise, you can get contacted and work with these content creators to create a show to, and for yourself personally to learn how to work on film and how to work on media and how exactly it's different when you're dealing with science in a fictional context instead of in a day to day, more practical setting. Now, you mentioned that you walked onto set and you got to do this over and over again. 
what exactly do you do when you go work on a show? Like, what what do you have to do there? So I find that a lot of people who do science consulting in the movies, they tend to work only in the writer's room. So they work when stories are being developed, and they're often the equivalent of being one-on-one science tutors. That the writers want to have a story that's set in a desert. And so somebody will come in, a scientist will come in, and they'll teach them all about the desert ecosystems and all the ways that this science could be used to drive a story forward. Or they come in to solve a particular specific problem. Uh, how can we have a scientifically plausible threat to our hero in these particular circumstances. So that's what a lot of science consulting looks like. Again, I'm a bit unusual in that because I'm where most of these things film, um, I actually have a full vertical integration where I work with everything from the writers in the writing room all the way up through physically being on set working while filming is happening. And when that's happening, I am almost like the stunt handwriting for actors. So if you have your genius character who's working on a problem and they're scrawling equations everywhere, how frustrating would it be for our genius to be stumped by F equals MA, just basic high school physics, that as soon as you recognize the equations, you're going, really? That's what you're having so much trouble with? But it also really breaks you out if it's complete gibberish. So somebody like me comes in and makes it so it is both plausible science and plausibly challenging science. So I've done things like fed the uh, energy of a solar flare into a black hole as an energy source in order to open up a, a wormhole that was sufficiently large to allow a traversable wormhole. So something big enough that people could pass through it as a way of justifying time travel. Is this science we've ever actually seen in the real world? Well, no, but the equations allow me to do it. So it is plausible to start running these numbers together. And it gives us a bit of a scientific basis to then explore the story further. So coming up with those equations and then actually writing them because it turns out a lot of actors do not have training in the Greek alphabet and other funny symbols we use in science is all part of that job. And so have you ever had problems with like your handwriting on a chalkboard, you know, being like, oh, your handwriting is too, I don't know, too neat for this <laughs> character or too messy? Or oh, That was actually the very, very first critique I ever got on set was my handwriting was implausibly neat to be a scientist. And I actually got into an argument with the director going, no, in science, we actually need to read the numbers afterwards. So messy handwriting is a bad and unusual thing. I would Um, say it's bad. I wouldn't say it's unusual. Well, your lab notebooks are usually legible. Your personal correspondence may be complete chicken scratch. But, you know, the numbers that actually matter are ones you have to be able to read later. Um, So that was before I had yet learned how to to work with people on set. So I I tried to set a hard line in the sand and quickly learn, no, 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 no. The director says the hard line in the sand. You figure out how to work with it. so since then, I, I actually have uh, handwriting samples for my actors, and then I have to learn how to mimic their handwriting in order to give them equations that match their work. So that's kind of fun. It's, I have my notebooks of various actors sample handwriting for me to work from. Wow, that's better than autographs. <laughs> it's so much more fun. And it's particularly fun when I have, um, it's, it's pretty common to have a situation where it's complete the equation where I've written the first half of the equation and then we stop and we film the actor in a close-up finishing the equation. And some actors are totally fine with whatever. They'll learn whatever I need them to do. And some of them are deeply uncomfortable with math. And so I've been given criteria on what types of equations they're allowed to finish. So they're allowed to have like numbers and variables but I can't touch any of the Greek alphabet in the variables, or I can only do the alien characters from the language of that particular universe. I can't do anything that we recognize and thus be able to critique from our day-to-day science world. So <laughs> I always find it fun when I'm given limits on what I'm allowed to do for fill-in-the-blank equations. 
Now, you mentioned a lot of very complicated kind of equations feeding the energy from, what was that, an exploding star into a black hole? Was that yep. roughly it? Like, what kind of preparation does that involve? So I do a lot of research before I show up on set, and I do a lot of um, writing down entire notebooks full of equations that are effectively a personalized reference that I'll use for that entire show. I do this partly because then I'm not sitting on set trying to either do math off the top of my head and then, you know, lose a two along the way, any of those transcription errors you do when you're under stress. Um, and also so I can be plausibly consistent if uh, I'm working on a show over multiple episodes and multiple seasons, I want to make sure that I'm I'm doing consistent processes, that I'm using the same form formulations and the same types of notation and that I know what my variables mean. Um, so all of the shows I work on, I have a, a notebook that's effectively my version of a show Bible, like a writer would have, except for I have it just for the math. Um, my funniest equation, my favorite one I ever had to do was I was told I needed to provide 20 feet of equations. And they didn't care what on, it had to be 20 feet long, uh, which was the first time in my life I've ever been instructed to do math by length before. Uh, it's happened quite a bit since then, but that was the first time. And so I ended up doing a set of equations that started with parallel universes and fed into other equations and other equations and other equations and ended up uh, calculating the characteristics of a storm. So I managed to go parallel universes all the way to atmospheric science in one long, massive collection of equations. <laughs> that sounds gorgeous, actually. It was really fun. And then somebody leaned up against the whiteboard that we were working on and erased part of it. And the entire room turned and just, no! And I'm like, it's okay. It's no big deal. I can fix this. Now <laughs> We've got it down. Yeah. Now you kind of went through a bunch of different specialties there. Like what kind of expertise do you need to have? Or have you ever been asked for like pharmacology equations, things completely outside your field? Yeah. So I definitely... Um, there's some philosophical differences in the types of people who do science consulting, where some people think you just need to get it skin deep and that's good enough. And that if you know how to look things up on Wikipedia, you're set and you're golden and you can be a science consultant. Um, I don't follow that philosophy because I think it's really easy to make mistakes in a field that you're, you're very unfamiliar with. Um, and so I really only work inside the physical sciences. I'll work with Anything that I'm familiar with, which thankfully is a fairly wide breadth of astronomy and physics and geoscience and mathematics, uh, cryptography, computer science, but I'm far less familiar and comfortable with biology or chemistry or medicine. So when I'm asked to work on those projects, what I'll often do is I'll phone a friend and either I'll, I'll work with that friend offset if they aren't familiar with, with doing science consulting and I'll step them through and mentor them and how do we do this? And then I'll go be their, their proxy on set and, and finish it. Um, or if they are more familiar and more comfortable with working on set, then I just bring them in as uh, another consultant to work on the show. And you mentioned that you don't want to make mistakes. Have you ever actually made a mistake that's gotten caught on camera? And if you have, what was it? And have fans yelled at you for years? <laughs> <laughs> so it's oh, I, I, I did not make a mistake in my math, but a mistake happened on my watch that I feel responsible for. So on Stargate Universe, uh, it, it, the concept was is a lost in space sort of idea where we've got a bunch of people who are trapped on a spaceship traveling through remote galaxies, and they've got limited supplies because they didn't mean to be there in the first place. So whenever they're solving their math, uh, their their problems, they went to a particular corridor and scrolled math on the walls. So over the course of the series, we filled an entire corridor with mathematics. And we actually had a map for it. So if the plot was about a particular thing, then the filming would happen in, in front of particular chunks of math. If the, the conversations were about something else, they go to a different section. So it was all mapped out by topic area. Um, and there was one day we were filming and all the filming was happening, pointing one direction down the hall. And uh, this was my hall. It was my math. It was my equations. Everybody would call it Mika's hall. And so I felt a lot of responsibility for making sure that it looked good and that I'd fix when people would smudge things or I'd add new math for new equation for new episodes, anything like that. It was my responsibility to keep it looking good and clean. And people trusted me to do this. 
and that anytime we had to have an actor fill in the blank equations, they'd do it. And then I'd do the reset afterwards of getting things all set back up and rewritten and erased and all of that so that we could keep going. And I kept the continuity like it was mine. Turned out after I had finished for the day, they turned around and filmed in the other direction that I hadn't checked over. And it Nobody noticed that somebody had played a prank expecting me to catch it. Um, and it made it all the way through filming and all the way through post and all the way onto air. And then fans started asking, why is there an ethnic slur on the walls? Oh, my God. And this is like, I didn't do it. And I'm sure whoever did it expected that I'd catch it. And I have felt bad about it ever since. And it has come up. It comes up every couple of years. Somebody goes, why does it say that on the walls? And I'm going, I don't know. I don't think it was meant to be there. Nobody tried to sneak it in. We all feel bad about it, but it was my responsibility to catch it. And I didn't. And I'm sorry. Is this like a recurring nightmare? It is definitely something that like, I, I can't fix it and I'll never be able to fix it. And I feel really bad about that. Um, and it's, oh, I hate it. I really do. It's, it's by far the thing that I wish I could fix of anything that's ever happened on set. Like we had once where somebody accidentally erased that same hall. They erased all the chalkboards and I had to redo them all because particularly we were filming out of order. So for continuity's sake, they had to be exact replicas, which took a solid week of extra work to put it all back together how it had been. And that mistake is way easier to swallow because we could fix it. Like we could make it right again. And because it didn't hurt anybody, it just took more time. Now, you mentioned that, you know, you had to do all of this science, like, you know, wormholes and storm patterns. Have you ever, how much do you end up having to bend science for the sake of the script? Because this is fiction entirely. Mm -hmm. So how much do you end up kind of saying, okay, well, in this universe, we're going to assume that gravity works backward. So this is actually one of my favorite things. Um, so I like having consistent rules. Um, I want consistent plausibility. And there's uh, the way that physics works you can have cause and effect, redshift and blue shift. So when things, when you're the, the Doppler effect, when you're moving towards things, they, they go towards shorter wavelengths. If you're moving away, is, is longer wavelengths and faster than light travel. Pick two out of three. You cannot have all three simultaneously and have a consistent set of equations. So in our actual real life reality, we've got cause and effect. Things happen and then other things happen. We have the Doppler effect, we can see the redshift as the universe expands away from us or hear the Doppler effect as sirens go past, which means we cannot have faster than light travel. Well, in a lot of sci-fi, particularly space sci-fi, you need to have faster than light travel. And it'd be very difficult to write a story where you don't have cause and effect, which means in almost every show I've worked on, there is no redshift and blue shift, which is like the most subtle detail in Easter egg, but it does come out every now and then where you can actually... If you're looking carefully at the background, you can see that it's been excluded or it does not exist in this entire framework of a universe. So that's that's one of my favorite like little mini things. Um, but I try and keep things plausible. The story will always come first. This is not a science lesson. It is not uh, an educational setting. It is an entertainment setting. So science will always have to be in the service of the story. But that doesn't mean you can't do things that are plausible. So an example of this is once in uh, Stargate Universe, we had an episode where the writers wanted to have humans versus the universe, and they wanted to have something astrophysical that would kill everybody every 22 minutes. So they decided that they'd have a pulsar that would come through and have this big radioactive beam sweep through the ship and pound them with high energy particles and kill them, which is great, except for par uh, pulsars rotate on like nanosecond levels, not 20 minute intervals. Uh, so to have a pulsar moving that slowly would generate an electromagnetic field about as deadly as holding fridge magnets and doing cartwheels. Yes, it's plausible, but you're not going to kill anybody that way. So we modified it by having a pulsar in a binary system, a starving pulsar in a binary system with a feeder star. And that feeder star would come around, that gas giant would come around every 22 minutes and knock that pulsar over the edge of mass so it would activate and go pulse, 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 pulse and kill everybody. And then the gas giant would keep sweeping away out of orbit and the pulsar would use up that extra mass and starve a little bit and go quiescent again, go quiet again until the next 22 minute pass. 
when we came up with this idea, we'd never seen anything like it in the entire real life universe. Astronomy had never found a system like this, but I went, you know what? There's no reason why not. This is a physically plausible thing that could happen. So we put it together. We did the episode. It aired. And then three years later, there was a paper published where an astronomer observed a system exactly like the one that I imagined. And so we did it in sci-fi and then real life caught up with us. And that is, it makes me so freaking happy. Did they name it after you? <laughs> no, I don't even think they knew about Stargate Universe, but I'm still like, we did it first! Well, I have to say, now I'm going to be, like, eagle-eye watching all of my science fiction films for the Doppler effect, being like, where is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, if it, and we did have one episode in Stargate where we had to have the Doppler effect as part of the plot line, and I'm still like, that is actually the tiny, tiny thing we've ever done that bugs me the most. It's like, you've just made our entire universe inconsistent because of this. Like, no. Well, have you ever, but. has the science that you've been working with ever changed the script? Um, so definitely we've changed words in the script, but not the fundamental plot line of the script. The plot will always stay the same. But the details might change around it. So like with that pulsar, we changed the a couple words in the script to reflect that instead of having one pulsar all by itself going slowly, suddenly we're in a binary system. And how do you communicate that big, huge, complicated idea without it turning into a really distracting string of techno babble? Well, it mostly ended up being the visual effects department did the heavy lifting there in terms of illustrating what we were talking about. Um, other times, uh, when working with the writer's room, it's much earlier in the process. So while working on Madam Secretary, we were um, doing an episode about um, permafrost melt and climate change. And what I did for them was be their science tutor, be their one-on-one -on -one science tutor talking about here's all the science we know about permafrost and how it's impacting climate change. And here's the experiments that have been done by dumping fertilizer into the soils over long periods of time. And here's the experiments being done and what we think might be happening in the future and all the risks and all the rewards. And it was these big, long conversations and these like written reports that you could have pretty much what you'd write for a term paper in a class, except for it's being given to a group of individuals for their own private perusal. Um, and from all of that, they generated the storyline of how their character was going to be talking about public policy and uh, the American response to climate change and melting in the Arctic and how their, that storyline evolved was all based on those conversations. Wow, that's really cool. <laughs> but I also know that you know, these days we kind of, especially among science communication people, Hollywood is kind of notorious. People in Hollywood are notorious for being not necessarily anti-science per se, but sometimes too credulous about things that are actually pseudoscience. Have you encountered any of that on set? You know, how did you, did you work with any of that? Um, yeah, so I've, I talk a lot about the concept of pixie dust when I'm talking about working as a scientist in sci-fi. Because when you talk to other scientists, they're all excited that you've worked on set. You've been sprinkled with the magical pixie dust of, of Hollywood magic. The same is true as a scientist on set, where all the, the actors and the crew are all really excited. You're a real-life scientist. Uh, and this manifests in things like uh, playing games of Stump the Scientist, where when people know I'm coming to set, they'll go and read a bunch of science news and then come and ask me questions about it. And it's partly as a way of making sure they understand or they're genuinely curious about the science that's being reported in the news. And it's partly a game of seeing if they can get one over on their personal scientist, if they can stump me and challenge me. Um, and sometimes it's also things like they'd ask me, why is the grass green or why are sunsets red and the sky blue? Those kind of basic philosophical questions that you feel like you should know the answer to, but then you try and explain it and realize you can't. Um, or what is flame? Uh, so I run into that a lot. Um, and when that happens, I often get asked questions about things that aren't real news. So I'll get asked about links between autism and vaccines, or I'll get asked about hylogryphics of spacecraft. Um, but I often find that they're willing to 
learn when I am correcting misinformation. So yes, I encounter it, but I don't get a lot of pushback when I go, well, well, actually, uh, here's what the real science actually says. And normally they are more happy that they've got a scientist that they know and can trust and that they can finally ask those questions that they didn't understand. And you're not the only scientist on a TV set. You mentioned earlier there's the Science and Entertainment Exchange. It hooks up scientists with media, whether that's TV, whether it's movies. Why do you think that some films and shows still get things amusingly wrong? Is it just to feed the pedantry? Because I'd like to think maybe that's why. (laughs) Well, I mean, there are some shows like Big Bang Theory has a dedicated scientist who's been working with them for years. And yet I personally cannot watch the show because I find the presentation of the culture of science to not at all match what I see in real life. So having a scientist on set does not automatically mean you get everything right. Um, And that can be a personal choice in how the show is being presented. There's also a large element of you don't know what you don't know. So you can assume that everything works a particular way. And unless you know somebody who who has that personal experience, you might not know any better. So just like scientists can be misrepresented in media, you still get things like every writer is apparently a millionaire in media or that journalism works by chasing people down the street and shoving microphones in their faces or, or sleeping with the source. Yes. Yeah. Or that lawyers have no concept of conflict of interest or There's all of these professions that we just glide over the details. Science is not unique in having that particular situation. Um, I do think that scientists are particularly sensitive to it. Um, I also think that there is an element of um, stories need to have places where you let go and take that leap of faith and go with the story. That you're going to have places where it's not what happens in real life. And that might be the gun that never runs out of ammo. It might be the romantic comedy where the big grand gesture is romantic and not creepy. Or it could be in the science of faster than light travel. That you need to have those what ifs in order to drive your storyline forward for most types of stories. For some genres, you're trying to go for hyper-realism. Um, I think the value of having a science consultant and trying to get the science right is that you create this basis of plausibility, that you create this fundamental trust so that your your consumers, be them readers or watchers or whatever type of media you're working with, are more likely then to suspend to save their suspension of disbelief for what you need for the plot line instead of having to start with the suspension of disbelief right away just from your basic premise. So we only have so much suspension of disbelief, you can't, you know, hang too much on it? Yeah, otherwise you start checking out of the story. You need to have enough that you're willing to be immersed in the storyline and immersed and and invested in the characters and what's going on for them. And it's just like having a character who's too perfect at everything. You need them to have some flaws that your universe can't have everything be magical and ideal in every single way because otherwise where's the conflict your magic if you're working in a fantasy setting your magic needs to follow rules and have limitations and people need to be able to work for things because if they can just wave their wand and get absolutely everything where's the conflict and where's the story and i just have one final question why are you not sure that you worked on sharknado (laughs) (laughs) so when you work on shows that are in development Often they don't have titles yet. So you just have ideas that you're working with or a very rough draft script or something like that. And you work on it and you give it back and then it disappears into the ether. And sometimes it just disappears and nothing else ever happens with it. I've worked on more pilots than I can even comfortably list that have never seen the light of day. And other times they undergo some shift and then reemerge. Well, I worked on something that follows a lot of the plotline of Sharknado in the time period that it should have been under development for the studio that was working on it, but it wasn't exactly the same. Were there sharks in tornadoes? (laughs) Yes. But (laughs) the entire plot doesn't match up, and it could have been a variation that got toasted and then repurposed and pulled out later on for something else. And I was working on the tornado part of things. Uh, And then a production cycle later, Sharknado emerged. But the biggest reason why I'm uncertain that I worked on it is why would Sharknado hire a scientist unless it's to get a checklist of things 
so that they can do the exact opposite at every single stage. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know. And honestly, I don't ever really want to resolve this. I'm okay with it being a Schrodinger's cat of did I work on it or did I not? I have no idea any which way about it. I'm going to be confused. So I might as well just live with the ambiguity. The ambiguity of Sharknado is the title yes. of your biography, though. <laughs> exactly. It's things I may or may not have done. It makes for a very interesting game of two truths and a lie, because I'm like, I don't know the answer to this. Well, Mika, thank you so much for being on the show with us. It was absolutely fun, and I am looking forward to hearing about more people's adventures with science and fiction. We've linked to more information about Mika's work and some binge-watching material at scienceforthepeople.ca. Now, we've talked about science in TV and film. What about science in books? Stay tuned. Bethany here. While we take a break, we thought we'd recommend another podcast that you might enjoy. If you like Science for the People, we think you'll also like Methods. This podcast is hosted by Brooke Burrell and covers the methods behind the madness of science and science writing. It digs deep into how scientists check their work and how journalists check their facts. I'd like to specifically recommend the episode where Brooke Burrell talked with Kelly and Zach Wienersmith about their book, Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything and how they cover all their future technologies with all of their economic and ethical warts. Make sure to check it out. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've talked a little bit about getting the science right in film and on TV, but there are many other mediums for media out there. And sci-fi got its start long before TV was a thing in the first place. Some science fiction authors probably just say the rules of space, time, and neuroscience can go hang themselves. But those authors are not Annalie Newitz. Annalie is an editor-at-large at Ars Technica and founder of io9. She is also the author of the book Autonomous, a new science fiction novel that's been nominated for a Nebula Award, among other awesome nominations. And in the writing of that novel, Annalie didn't just rely on her own imagination and extensive science knowledge. She talked to scientists, including me. Annalie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And first, just for those who haven't read the book, and I hope that all of you out there have read the book, just in case you haven't, and I'm sure you've done this a billion times, can you give us the trailer of what your book is about? So my book is set about 125 years in the future, and it's about a pharmaceutical pirate who is a synthetic biologist who's become disgusted with how much her scientific work got tied up in patents and greedy corporations. So she's gone rogue and she's reverse engineering expensive pharmaceuticals to bring to people who can't afford them. And so she's pissed some corporations off and the corporations have sent after her a couple of agents to stop her, one of whom is a robot who has just been born and or just been booted up and is really confused about how he fits into the human world and who she really is. And she has to explore her identity as she's trying to track down this pirate. So it's your basic robot versus pirate story. As you do. As one always does. And you built this world about 125 years into the future. It's based on Earth. What kind of things did you decide to predict were going to happen to the planet to the people. So I did a lot of world building, especially when I was first starting. And there were a few things that I knew for sure that I wanted to incorporate into the story. One was that this is a future of property extremism. Property rights have kind of replaced human rights. And that extends to all areas of property law. So there's very radical intellectual property law, very extreme Corporations can own intellectual property for astronomically long periods of time. But it also extends to the laws that govern what we think of as human rights now. And this is a world where indentured servitude is legal again. And indeed, somewhat like our world now, except that they're actually openly calling it indentured servitude. And it's basically slavery. And I really want to deal with the fact that this trend that we're seeing now across the globe of people who are poor becoming poorer, people who are very rich becoming even more incredibly insanely rich, how that's going to play out over the long term and what 
what the solutions might be for it. And in this world, of course, the solution that they come up with is indenture, because how great you can just sell yourself and then some company will take care of feeding you and housing you. And, you know, you can just be free to work all day and it'll be awesome. And the other thing, fantastic. it's super great. Yeah. And the other thing in this future is that it has been dramatically affected by climate change. So there is basically no more uh, North Pole ice cap. And so my pirate, of course, has a shipping route across the Arctic Sea, which is great. She can drive her submarine full of drugs around. And also biotech has really blossomed. And there's a lot of green biotech. So the world has responded to climate change in a really positive way in that uh, most energy is sustainable, most building materials are sustainable. And so we get this kind of contrast where people are kind of living in this almost Wakanda-esque green tech world, but there's also slavery. So the world has progressed in some ways and it has regressed in others. And the thing about science fiction is that it is fiction. Like, you can just throw all the rules of physics and biomedicine and genetics in the trash if you want to. But a lot of authors, including you, don't do that. Why not just say space-time can go tie itself in a nut? (laughs) Well, I can understand why people want to do that. But for me, I've worked most of my adult life as a science journalist. And before that, I was a technology journalist. And I like working within the rules of science. To me, as a writer, first of all, I do, you know, I kind of want people to understand how science really works. Like, even when I'm writing fiction, I feel like I want people to sympathize with scientists and and see that there's an element of realism in what I'm writing. But also, as I said before, there's a there's a pleasure in having rules and limitations as a writer. For me, I think that there's a huge amount of freedom. And I mean, certainly compared to journalism, there's a lot of freedom because I can just say whatever I want about characters and they won't be fired or be sad when they when they read the article um, or when they read the book because they're not real people. And I, but I really, like I said, I, I just, I thought it was fun to go talk to scientists about a lot of the topics in the book and say, well, how do you think this would really happen? I mean, there's always going to be an element of like pulling it out of my ass because it's the future, right? So who knows, you know, and and if you had, you know, really great biotech, what, what would it look like? Um, you know, that's all up to speculation. But in this novel, I did try to keep everything based in discoveries that could actually realistically grow out of what we already know. So there's no um, radical longevity. There are, there are life extenders, but they don't really, you know, all they do is kind of keep you vigorous, uh, until you're in your nineties. There's nothing, you know, dramatic about it. There's no, um, teleportation. There's no, um, you know, people taking drugs that, uh, make them, uh, never have to sleep again or, you know, there's just a lot. I tried to just build those limitations in. The only thing that I think is actually super unrealistic in this book is the fact that there is a human equivalent AI only in 125 years. I don't I don't know if we're going to have strong AI in 125 years, if ever. So that was one area where I did take some liberties was I was just like, OK, fine. This robot is a person. That's it. <laughs> just, just go with that. You know what it kind of makes me think of? And this is a little a little out there, I guess, but it kind of makes me think of the different forms of poetry. And to me, sci-fi is kind of like a sonnet. It's bounded by all of these hard rules of meter and line. But within that, you get freedom within those constraints. Whereas fantasy is more like free-flowing blank verse. There's no rhythm you need to worry about. Everything is just what you want it to be. Well, I I like that idea. I like the comparison with poetry. I used to be a poet when I first started my writing career, so that that appeals to me. And I did I did love the fact that poetry kind of puts you into a um you have certain conventions you have to obey. Although I always wrote lyric poetry, so I had no <laughs> no rhyme or nothing. Um, but I actually with fantasy, I think that's not really true because one of the things that fantasy writers do that I think gives fantasy readers a lot of pleasure is building up a world that's internally consistent, where the magic always works in a certain way, or if it doesn't work in a certain way, that's a problem or there's a reason for it. And we kind of have to figure out what's wrong or or what's changed. And, 
you know, the reason why people obsess over things like Game of Thrones is that it's, it, it is actually an internally consistent world and it's very thoughtfully designed. Um, it's true that maybe the economics are a little bit hastily thought through <laughs> or simplistic, but it, you know, it functions as its own, lo- it functions, it has its own logic. It, it functions as a, as a real, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It has its own logic. <laughs> so in poetry terms, it has its own rhyme scheme. <laughs> I think so. I mean, it's like, it's heroic couplets or, or whatever, you know, it's, it's an epic tale. And I think, um, you know, some fantasy may just say, okay, we're not going to have any rules at all. But I find that to be that that kind of fantasy and that kind of science fiction, I find super annoying. I always refer to that as like the holodeck style science fiction, where it's like, oh, you're on the holodeck. So anything can happen. You can turn into a flower, you can hang upside down, like you can have sex with an alien and not get punctured. Like, it's all great. Um, I mean, not all aliens would puncture you, but some might. Okay. So hashtag not all aliens, not all aliens will puncture you. But <laughs> if you were, you know, like if you wanted to have sex with some kind of invertebrate, like there might be puncturing, um, but not on the holodeck because all, you know, all rules are whatever you want them to be on the holodeck or like a fantasy novel that's like all set in a dream world. And so, you know, there's dream logic and like a horse turns into a tree and then you turn into a princess, but you're actually a mouse. And like, then you turn into a, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Um, I find annoying. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. I know a lot of people love it and I'm not saying it's bad. It's just not to my taste. Well, anyway, you took this carefully bounded science world and then you you kind of took it into the future and in the process you handed out drafts of the book to scientists and science writers to check it over what kinds of experts were you looking for and why so i have a lot of stuff in this book about neuroscience because the drugs that my pirate is dealing with there's one particular drug that she's distributing that has it's kind of like a futuristic provigil it it gives people sharper attention and focus And it also is very addictive. And so I had to talk to neuroscientists and addiction experts about like how the hell they work because I don't don't really know. (laughs) So and I didn't want it to be kind of a fake addiction. I wanted it to feel very realistic because these are these characters are scientists. Um, My main character, Jack, the pirate is a synthetic biologist. So I did make some synthetic biologists look this over Um and some geneticists. And uh, I got actually really great feedback from this one geneticist I showed it to who actually was like, yeah, most of the genetic stuff is fine. But God, do you have to keep reusing this one word for um, because I have this device that's kind of like a 3D printer, and I call it a faber. And I had originally had everything that made anything that was 3D printed called a faber. And he's like, can't you just have a bunch of different names for different kinds of fabbers? Like, I really got sick of hearing the word faber. <laughs> so he gave me good advice. Um, and then I also talked to robotics experts and artificial intelligence experts, um, as well as, you know, I had um, readers who were looking at it purely uh, to give me feedback on the character Jack's uh, background. She's Chinese Canadian, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't dramatically represent what it's like to be, you know, she's fourth generation Chinese Canadian, and I didn't want it to be just sort of tone deaf. Um, so there was really a wide variety of um, feedback that I got that was ranged from scientific feedback to cultural feedback on what I was writing. And do many science fiction writers reach out to scientists when they write their novels? Do or do most of them just kind of, you know, I don't know, Wikipedia it as they go along? I think it really depends. Some science fiction writers are definitely like me. They talk to lots of scientists and, and run their books by them. Um, I think other ones are either confident enough in their scientific knowledge that they don't feel like they need to do that. Um, or they just, as we were saying earlier, they're like, well, screw the rules. Like I'm, I'm writing about faster than light travel already. Screw it. You know, I don't care. Um, the novel that I'm working on right now, uh, which is not out yet and won't be out for at least a year, um, is about time travel. And so the first thing I did was I sat down with a physicist and I'm like, okay, time travel, like, what's the most realistic way to do this? And he was like, there's literally no way to do this. That's realistic. Like, (laughs) it's not a thing. Like, just, yeah. And he, and he said like, look, it's fine. Like, it's a, it's like, it's a literary device. 
do what you want to do with it and just just own it. You know, you're just using a literary device. It's not going to be scientific. And so what I wound up doing for this book is having time travel that's unscientific, but uh, it's it's a naturally occurring phenomenon on Earth. And so there's scientists who are studying it, who are trying to figure out like why the fuck it's happening. So I still have a scientific perspective. And I so I ended up talking to this physicist about like, well, if you discovered that time travel was possible, like what would be the questions you would ask about it? Like what would you speculate was allowing it to happen? And so that wound up being really fun because I at least got to still imagine how would science deal with this completely unscientific phenomenon? (laughs) Now, you mentioned that you've been talking to time travel people. Well, okay, physicists, not actual time travel people. (laughs) I uh, mean, as far as I know. (laughs) (laughs) As far as you know, none of them has two hearts and, you know, secretly Doctor Who. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I wish. (laughs) That would be nice. Someday. Um, But you reached out to roboticists, you reached out to neuroscientists. How did you find the scientists that you reached out to and did any of them say no? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so none of them said no. Um, and I should mention, actually, that I also talked to some economists um, and some patent law experts, too. And everybody was pretty nice about it, including... So almost everyone I talked to, I at least kind of knew them. Like, I, I knew you and from, you know, going to conferences and stuff. And so it wasn't like I was a complete stranger being like, hi, read my book about robot sex. Um, I would have done it. (laughs) Yeah, I knew you would be sympathetic to my (laughs) cause. But there were, um, when I was initially working on the book, and I was developing the idea of this really addictive productivity drug, um, I just contacted two neuroscientists kind of out of the blue, who have worked on addiction and had written some really interesting papers about it and had worked together too. And so I sent both of them emails. And then I guess they had talked to each other behind my back and decided it was okay to talk to me. Um, And so I talked to both of them. And they were like, I could tell that they were kind of just tickled by the idea, like that no one had ever asked them to speculate about weird futuristic drugs or like any of the things that I was asking them to think about. And I think they had fun. Um, I sent them, I, I like emailed them when the book came out and I was like, do you want a copy? And they didn't ever write back. So I don't know if they're ashamed of what that created or not, but they were super nice about it. Um, and, you know, I thank them in the in the acknowledgements. Uh, I talked to Kent Parrott Barrage and Terry Robinson, who are colleagues. Yes. yes. Um, and yeah, they were both, like I said, they were very amused. And um, I, I took both what you said and what they said very seriously because, uh, you gave me really good feedback on addiction stuff, and that was really helpful. So um, you were like, this does not sound like the right kind of drug to be doing this thing. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> I had like originally compared this drug to heroin, and you were like, this is nothing like heroin. <laughs> Sorry. Like, okay, fine. <laughs> fine, 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 fine. <laughs> now, you did have several scientists per topic. Did you get conflicting opinions on any of the science? How did you kind of resolve any conflicts? That's a good question. Um, I didn't get any, I'm trying to think if I got anything conflicting. Um, I don't think anybody said anything that contradicted each other. I mean, I didn't, to be honest, I did not talk to enough scientists to really get any kind of conflicting information because the ones I did talk to, I mostly sought out because they already were people I kind of agreed with and like had already written, like they'd already written stuff that I had either written about or had kind of taken on board as like my idea of how I wanted to organize the science in the novel. So um, so there was no kind of, I, there, I made no effort to reach out to people who disagreed with me. <laughs> um, because this is fiction, like in my nonfiction, in my journalism, of course, I would always want to get both, you know, as many opinions as possible. But um, that's the beauty of fiction is, uh, and that's certainly one of the reasons why I love writing fiction is I can just be really, really, really biased. And it doesn't matter because I'm not writing journalism. <laughs> so that's fun. That, that does sound <laughs> Like fiction is a whole lot more fun than nonfiction right now. It's just like a relief, you know, because I I feel like there's, you know, there's a lot of responsibility in doing journalism to be accurate, to represent the whole story. And if it's a complicated science story, the whole story can be, it's not just two opinions, it might be five opinions, and they might be really complicated. And it's, you know, and you have a responsibility, as you know, as a journalist to help the public understand that. 
And oftentimes the public is paying for that research. So it's even more important that they understand how how valuable it is. Whereas in fiction, it's like all you got to do is show people a good time and not make an, an idiot out of yourself. And then you're golden, you know? <laughs> So what kind of feedback did you end up getting? Can you give some examples? Sure. Um, so one good, I mean, so I, like I said, I got good feedback from you and I completely changed how I represented this drug, Zacuity, um, which is my uh, funny pharmaceutical company name for the drug. Um, I talked a lot to, um, I talked a lot about how to, to Kent and, um, and to, uh, Terry about what you see when you're looking at neurons in the lab. And like when you're actually like, you know, just doing any kind of science where you're looking at, at neurons and, and sort of how you would, would, would you see the neuron changing shape? Would you, what would it look like under the microscope? Things like that. Um, and so I changed a lot of scenes just to reflect the reality of what you would actually see in a lab. Um, I designed my robot um, basically entirely I talked to um, David Calkins and Simone Davalos, who are two roboticists in the Bay Area who organize robo games and robo Olympics. And they're just, I mean, they're amazing. They like make robots just appear out of nowhere. And they just, yeah, robots just like come out of portals in, in reality when they're around. And um, so I went and had dinner with them and was just like, okay, what do I build my robot out of? Like, let's start from first principles. And so Paladin is... I mean, basically, Dave and Simone kind of designed Paladin for me. Um, I was like, what would he be made of? Like, and so we talked about, um, you know, building a carbon alloy carapace that would be really light and, um, you know, what size the bot might be. And so that was really helpful. Um, and then I talked for the economy in the book because the economy is very important. You know, it's, it's all about, um, you know, how do you build an economy where people feel like becoming a slave is better than the alternative. And so I sat down with Noah Smith, who is an economist, an academic, and he also writes for Bloomberg. And I was like, okay, what do I do? How do I build an economy that fits this narrative? And he just spun this incredibly dark dystopian tale of, of how that would work. And basically all that we hear, all that you hear about the economy in the novel about how People have to buy franchises in a city in order to live there. So you have to have money in order to even live in a place and work in a place. Um, that was Noah's idea. I just like stole what he said. He was like, well, you know, you don't have to, you know, we think of it as an inalienable right here and now in the United States that you can live wherever you want and you can just take whatever job that you're qualified for. But that doesn't have to be the case. We just, we just assume that because that's what we've been raised with. But uh, it might easily be the case that in order to participate in in a particular industry, you'd have to pay your way in, uh, explicitly pay your way in, not the way we do it in our country where you pay for college. And that's sort of your entree into middle class work, um, it, which is, of course, a, a scam and a, and a shitty way to do it. But, uh, you know, in this case, in my future, it's very open. It's like you pay your money, you can live here and you can work here. And if you can't, well, you can be indentured. That's your choice. Sorry, I hope that was that was really long. <laughs> no, that's wonderful. I actually wanted to kind of follow up on that. Um, you said you did a lot of world building. How did the scientists you talked to change your world? You talked a bit about how they changed your economy. Um, did they change other aspects of the world that you built? So... Like I said, um, you know, my robot was directly influenced by talking with roboticists. Uh, the way that I talk about addiction in the book was directly influenced by talking to uh, neuroscientists. And a lot of it just had to do, I mean, it's not super complicated, but, you know, it had to do with things like if you become addicted, it affects dopamine receptor growth in your brain. Because one hypothesis is that you know, if you have, um, if you don't, if your dopamine receptors kind of die off, um, you make more, um, you don't make decisions that are as well, that are as considered. Your decision making is um, impoverished. Uh, and so part of what happens when you're addicted is not only are you addicted to the substance, but your dopamine receptors are changing so that you can't decide to kick the drug because you're making, you know, worse and worse decisions. You're, you're, totally not risk averse anymore. You're just like doing whatever you feel like <laughs> without thinking about the implications. And so I built that into the whole, I mean, the whole second half 
of the novel, spoiler, is about them trying to undo the effects of this drug. So they need to come up with a therapy that helps people regrow their dopamine receptors as well as um, changing the effects that this drug has had on the brain, which is it's affecting the reward system. I know that's not a big surprise. Um, so it's it's kind of that was a big part of how I built the drug and how I built the therapy was just by begging uh, neuroscientists to give me some hints about what these drugs might do to your brain. And it seems like consulting scientists about a science fiction book, like, so far, we're hearing all about the pros and the benefits. Are there any downsides to doing this? Were there any cons to consulting scientists? I mean, I think the con is when you want to be realistic, having someone come to you. For example, what I was saying earlier about the novel I'm working on now about time travel, I was really disappointed to find out that there's actually no realistic way to do time travel. I kind of had had the hope that maybe there would be one... I mean, I'm sure there's some physicist out there, um, perhaps someone who's on TV a lot, who believes that there is some possible way you could have time travel. Um, but I think most physicists who are being honest will say, look, I mean, sure, anything's possible, you know, but right now we don't really have any physics that would explain such a thing. And, you know, we, we certainly have ideas about, um, you know, how quantum mechanics might somehow be connected to the fabric of space time and that maybe that could be manipulated. But would it allow you to like jump into a hole and come out 500 years in the past? Like, no, <laughs> that's not what it would be like at all. And, uh, and, and imagining that it is, is like just fantasy. So I was bummed. And that was like, like I said, I had to have this moment where I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm writing science fiction, but there's a strong strand of fantasy here. <laughs> so you can't let them burst your bubble too much. I mean, I think you should let them burst your bubble because I'm fucking sick of people claiming that like, oh, well, I made the most realistic time travel story. And like, because once I did research on it, it was like, actually, no, like, there's no such thing. Like, you can do a time travel story that's gritty and realistic. But like, you know, that doesn't mean that the physics are realistic, or that it's actually possible based on what we understand about the universe and the cosmos. So um, I think I, I think the neg yeah, the negative part is just realizing that you may just not be able to do something that's scientifically realistic, which for some people, they don't care <laughs> about that. So um, I think the only other possible negative consequence would be, and this hasn't happened to me, but I could easily imagine it happening is if I consulted a scientist and then wrote the book and then that scientist was really pissed and really felt like it did a disservice to science. Like I live in fear of, you know, of that happening, of somebody saying like, you've actually ruined science communication for everyone now. You, you ruined science communication. Um, and I, you know, I think, you know, that could happen, but it's much more likely that that would happen if I wrote something that was nonfiction, <laughs> claim, claiming to be real and it was wrong. Um, and, you know, so uh, I don't think, I think that's one of the beauty parts of writing fiction is that really like it's hard to burst your bubble too much because it's, it's all made up. <laughs> well, Annalie, thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. We've linked to more information about Annalie Newitz and her book Autonomous at scienceforthepeople.ca. I may be biased, but I think it's brilliant. At our website, you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can follow us around, subscribe to the show, and tell us what you think. And thank you so much to all those who supported us on Patreon. We hope you loved your scientist birthday card. We certainly did. Thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. 
The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>